0: Welcome to CX Stories. My name is Tishara Dibley and I'm one of the Deputy Directors of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. You're listening to uh, one of the episodes that we're recording as part of our 2020 ASEAN Forum on responses to COVID-19 across ASEAN. And for this episode, we're speaking with Jeff Nielsen, who's an Associate Professor in Geography at the University of Sydney. He's also the Indonesia Country Coordinator for the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Jeff's research focuses on economic geography, environmental governance, and rural development in Southeast Asia, and he has specific expertise on Indonesia. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for being part of it.
1: Thanks for having me, Tush.
0: So you've done a video looking at the impacts of COVID-19 on livelihoods across Southeast Asia. A lot of our other speakers have talked about government policies around the economy, around health, and have looked at the impacts of water closures and all those sorts of responses to the crisis. What do we know about how rural people are responding to the pandemic?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, the, the big impact was in the urban areas. That's where the, the, the shops were shut down. That's where people were laid off. But I think what's happening now, slowly those impacts are having ramifications into rural Southeast Asia. And so we look at certainly the countries with the larger populations, You know, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, Thailand, they all have fairly substantial rural populations. So they probably range, I don't know, something like 40 to 50% perhaps of the population is still living in, in rural areas. And what's interesting is that a lot of research across, across Southeast Asia actually has shown that, we, that many countries seem to be experiencing what Jonathan Rigg refers to as a truncated agrarian transition, meaning that that number of people working in rural areas, living in rural areas, is remaining relatively constant. Um, and part of the reason for that appears to be that the role that rural areas play as something of an informal social safety net during times of crisis. So it seems that many, many people are often returning to rural areas to take up activities such as farming, which is what happened certainly in, in the, the major Asian financial crisis in 1998, and at the moment there appears to be increasing demand on those rural resources right across the region.
0: So Indonesia is one of the worst affected countries throughout this pandemic and also has one of the largest rural populations in the region. How effective has the government of Indonesia been in making sure that social protection programs are reaching those that need it most?
1: Formal social protection programs only really got implemented after the Asian financial crisis. So they've only been around for about 20 years and they started off as sort of rice for the poor programs, the, the Ruskin program, and then it slowly evolved out to these various cash transfer schemes and what they often refer to as Bansos, the Bantuan social programs. Um, now the challenge that's always plagued any of these programs has been this problem of targeting and making sure that the programs are actually going to those people that need it most. So as you can imagine, when you've got a lot of people working in the informal sector, a lot of people involved in, in, in rural communities, farming, small holdings, They're not necessarily plugged into the taxation system in the same way that we might expect in somewhere like Australia, where we can clearly identify people's incomes and then provide supports in in response to that. The informality of the economy has always made targeting a major challenge. And so that that goes for the current programs as well that have been introduced post COVID. Some of the programs build on earlier ones and Indonesia is trying to develop a unified database for the poor so we can target more effectively. But in response to COVID, there's been a sort of a, a diversion of funding from the, the Dana Dessa, the village program, towards providing social support through the village program. And that has sort of, as, as I understand, has relied on its own, own database being created on the go through the heads of villages. And that, that has come under a, a bit more scrutiny and criticism for not being able to target those that need it most.
0: So that suggests that people in these rural areas are probably relying more on informal support systems. What are some examples of these and how well are they operating?
1: Yeah, so informally you get activities, you know, such as the the Arisan, the the rotational savings programs that are implemented across the board, the Gotong Royong programs, uh, Gotong Royong activities. And these are sort of where, where community members get together, help each other out on a rotational basis and get their supports through that way or it might be through patronage systems as well. Now, the, the key challenge, I think, at the moment is that a lot of these informal systems that are in place rely on people getting together. And so that's the whole rationale for them. And, of course, at the moment, people can't get together. So to give you one example, where, I'm, I'm, where I do a lot of research in the Taraji region of, of Sulawesi, um, and there a lot of wealth is transferred through traditional ceremonies, in the sense you get sort of patrons, if you like, who would go on and, and would undertake a large ceremony, a bit like the Javanese might have slamatan or another such ceremony, and that wealth then gets redistributed through the community. Patrons are incentivized, if you like, to do that, because they also gain in social prestige because of the size of the gathering. So a lot of these sorts of mechanisms aren't currently operating of course, the ceremonies in have been were cancelled for a long time, and so it's not possible to get together socially and for the clients, if you like, within these systems to provide social prestige for their patrons. So they're under a lot of pressure at the moment, I'd say.
0: So what are people doing instead?
1: Well, it seems that a lot of people are starting to go back to agriculture, which, which is, um, as long as you've got access to some sort of farmland, of course, um, can sometimes be something of a, of a buffer, um, and you can go and... You know, resume self-provisioning of foods, for example, and that seems to be something that people are relying on more.
0: We've heard also about you know a lot of people in urban areas who've lost their jobs or who are unable to work due to lockdowns returning to agricultural areas. And do you know what impact this has had on rural communities?
1: Yeah, so with the end of Ramadan, I mean, when normally, of course, we have this mass exodus of people out of Jakarta going back to their rural regions and often taking with them a lot of money, And that sort of gets fed back into rural areas and is quite important for economic development. With President Jokowi effectively banning the mudik, it meant that that transfer of wealth didn't occur. And that ban, of course, was done to actually prevent the virus itself from spreading across the country. So it was implemented for good reason. But it seems to have had unintended consequences if it was applied. And I guess there's been a lot of uncertainty over just how effective that ban was, both at the time and in the longer term. So it seems that... As far as I can see from the data of cases, even though there's still this large concentration in Jakarta, the virus itself is now spreading throughout the country and a lot of that is probably through return migrants returning to their villages.
0: So how have Southeast Asian governments more generally tried to support the the back-to-the-farm strategy that you mentioned earlier and, in particular, how have they supported that during COVID?
1: Yeah, so we've seen a few programs, which, you know, things like Providing basic agricultural supports, uh, distribution of seedlings, distribution of planting material, fertilisers, etc. As a way to support rural and, and more particularly agricultural livelihoods. Some of that appears to have been affected and appreciated. But the key problem with such a strategy, of course, is that it only helps if those people have got access to land and so for the landless of which there are many and for those that sort of are at the bottom of the rural social order often don't have that access to land as a resource and that may well be just because of the particular social structures in place or it might be of course that they've lost their land due to sort of large infrastructure projects or large plantations other natural resource projects and so that provides something of a inherent limitation to relying on any sort of back-to-the-farm option as a social safety buffer.
0: So in the long term, what sort of policies do you think might be needed to support livelihoods in Southeast Asia?
1: What I'd like to see is much better long-term access for communities towards Indonesia's natural resource wealth. And I'm talking there about access to land, access to forests, access to fishery stocks. And I think that should be a priority because these are essentially resilience-enhancing in terms of livelihoods rather than seeking ways to exploit these resources for short-term economic gain by large-scale forest logging operations, by introducing plantations or or large-scale fisheries. So instead, recognising that these various resources play this important role and making sure that people have continued access to them um, over the long term. So I'd like to see that incorporated into long-term community-based natural resource management policies that ensure that sort of access in the long term. Um, The other thing, of course, is to make sure that the government has more effective social protection policies in place themselves. So the various cash payment schemes, for example, that I should say have improved considerably over the last 10 years or so and are becoming better and better targeted over time, but making sure these are a lot more... Flexible and able to adapt to changing needs of households because often we get the household, the recipient households sort of are locked in in many areas, despite the fact that, of course, those are experiencing poverty is quite dynamic. People move in and out of poverty all the time. So making sure that these, the, the formal social protection systems are much better designed, targeted and reaching those that need it most.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Uh, it's great to get a perspective of what's happening at the rural level and from Indonesia as well. If any of our listeners have questions, please post them on our Facebook page or our YouTube or join the conversation on our hashtag, ASEAN Forum 20. And we'll speak with Jeff again next week during the panel discussion. You've been listening to SEAC Stories. This episode is part of a special series of recordings we're doing for the 2020 ASEAN Forum, which focuses on the responses to the COVID-19 pandemic across the region. Each of our speakers has recorded a video in addition to this podcast, which you can catch on our Facebook page, YouTube channel or the Siac website. If you have questions for the speaker, please post them wherever you watch the video or post it on Twitter using the hashtag aseanforum 20. I'll be putting the questions to our panelists during a panel discussion on the 12th of August, which will be recorded and posted on all of our channels as well. See you there.